you'll notice in your worship guide, it says uh, chapters 19 and 20 of Job, but it's actually 20 and 21, but the uh, verses uh, are the same. Hear now God's word to us. There we go. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me, because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like, like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words, and let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. As for me is my complaint against man, why should I not be impatient? Look at me. And be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity? that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face, and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. The word of the Lord. Be to God. This summer we're making our way through the book of Job, and we've said that the book of Job invites you into the deep end, so to speak, of relationship with God. We've also advocated to you that if you're wise, you will listen, because Sooner or later, whether you want to be in the deep end or not, life will put you in the deep end. 
We've said that Job gives us a picture of what it means to be intimate or real with God. Right? Job's friends talk about God, but they never speak to God. Job alone in the book is the one who actually speaks to God. And at the end, even though Job will be called upon to rethink some of the ways he's approached things, he's vindicated. God honors him. And God judges and condemns the three friends. Which is surprising because throughout Job will be very real with God. He'll say very uh, authentic things. He will, he will challenge God's justice. He will say that if we were in a courtroom, I would prevail against you because you have allowed this calamity to come upon me undeservedly. There's nothing that I've done, and the book acknowledges that there's nothing that Job did to suffer the way uh, that he has. Yet, as we're working through the book of Job, there's an aspect that I think I've been, uh, for a number of reasons, I've thought about at length this week. And it was really because, uh, at first, Angie Gentry came up to me and she said, you know, why do the friends hate Job so much? I thought that's, that's an interesting way to put that question. And what she meant is, you know, they not only are, you know, they're convicting him of sin, they're saying, you've sinned, you just aren't acknowledging your sin. So it's not just that they're going after truth, but then they go on to disparage Job. The language gets more and more harsh as you proceed through the book. And even today we'll see that Zophar's is some of the harshest yet, declaring Job unequivocally to be a wicked individual uh, who deserves what he receives. So why do they, why, why is their language so pointed, so hate, hateful, so angry? They're trying, they're, it's more than simply calling someone to repentance, it's trying to destroy someone. I thought, that's true, why is that? And we need to wrestle with that. And then uh, Ryan Swindle came up and said, you know, have you ever read uh, Rene Girard, who's a famous, uh, he's d- died just a few years ago, but was a very prominent um, intellectual, uh, trained in literature, became a social theorist, and was converted and because he was introduced to the Christian story. And I'll tell you why and how, uh, but it has, it has a lot to teach us about how to read the book of Job. So in order to do that, we're going to have to, we're going to wrestle uh, or learn a little bit about two theories this morning, two social theories that basically came about from people studying the Bible. Uh, one is called mimetic theory, and one is called scapegoat theory. Now we'll get to both in a minute, and they'll be pretty accessible, I think, to you. And a good way to introduce where we're headed is to uh, is to go to uh, a helpful commentary on society, and uh, which is Key and Peele. Now Key and Peele are a comedy team that are on uh, Comedy Central, and I don't want you to go home and to Google all of the YouTube for Key and Peele because some of their sketches are completely and very inappropriate. But they also have been noted as being uh, rather insightful and playing on very large social themes in the midst of their comedy. So they have one sketch, which is called uh, The School Bully or something like that. And Key, if you know them, Key is the taller one, and he's playing the nerd. Right? There's a, a boy sitting outside on the steps reading a book. He's got braces, and obviously he's intended to portray the nerd of the school and out of the school doors walks Peel, who plays the school bully, and is with his friends and proceeds to make uh, Key his target, right? The nerd. So this is what's happening, and this is how the sketch goes. Uh, so the nerd says, you know, why do you got to bother me, man? And uh, the bully says, 
because I'm not doing so good at school. I'm reading at a third grade level. I really don't want to get left back, so when I see someone reading for fun, it makes me feel that much more stupid, and then I get mad. So the nerd, surprised at this answer, says, I I didn't know that. Thanks so much for opening up to me. Shut up, ugly. Uh, Why did you have to go there, says the nerd. I'm very self-conscious about my appearance. I do not think I'm attractive. So when I see a handsome man, it makes me feel ugly. Then I'm ugly on the inside as well as the outside, and it needs to vent somewhere. That somewhere is you. Nerd says, you understand this on such a deep level. And now I'm going to beat you for acknowledging my emotional problems. (laughs) All I'm saying is that if you understand yourself so well, then perhaps you want to work on changing it. Of course I want to change it, but it's the only defense mechanism I have against more terrifying problems buried deeper inside of me. And the sketch actually goes on, but you get the idea. Humorous, why? Because the characters, particularly the bully, is so self-aware that his actions, his desire to create conflict and violence are motivated by things that are happening around him, by things that feel out of control as a result of him comparing himself to other people in ways that he doesn't feel like he can aspire to the intelligence of others or to the, the looks of others. And that leads to conflict and tension, which uh, in turn leads to this form of violence in the bully-nerd encounter on the school steps. And so we might return with this question that we're wrestling to some degree is, why are the friends so angry at Job? What is the tension that exists there that causes the conflict? Why are they not simply satisfied to to love him in a hard way, but instead have really taken a turn at devouring him. And so, as I said, we have to wrestle with two theories. One's mimetic theory and one's scapegoat theory. And, uh, and really, Rene Girard is the person who is um, responsible for uh, articulating them the way they are used today and for putting them together. So, first, mimetic theory. Now, mim- uh, mimesis is simply the Greek word uh, for uh, imitation, right? So it's a theory about imitation. And Gerard, who was uh, pretty brilliant, said, uh, all human beings have desire. Right? We say that all the time. It's a, a very Augustinian and biblical thing to say, which is uh, we are possessed, our hearts drive our wills. We're driven by our affections. So Gerard says that uh, all human beings have desires, But the way those desires are informed and take shape uh, is informed by learning what to desire. And he says humans are really, you know, quite unique in this way. If you think of something like a cow, a cow has the biological need to eat. But when it's hungry and decides to eat, what does it eat? Grass, exactly, right? Every time the cow is going to eat grass, right? He's not debating, but you, when you're hungry... You say, what am I going to eat? Suddenly you have to decide. There are many options before you. Not only will you wrestle with what to eat, but you may wrestle with why you're eating. Are you eating because you're hungry? Or are you eating because you're stressed? Are you eating because you have a biological need? Or simply because you want a hit of lots of carbohydrates to make you feel better about your day? All kinds of desires being weighed when we think about something as simple as eating. So these desires are simply simply part of being human. 
But Gerard says all our desires are informed by imitation. In other words, uh, even as you grow, right, when you're born and an infant and a toddler, your desires are learning what to really focus on. And that is changing all the time depending on what you want to imitate. So you can think about places which cause you to actually think consciously about imitation. Oh, I'm looking through a catalog and I see a pair of shoes. Or I see an outfit and I think, I like that. I think that would look good on me. I want to imitate that look in my wardrobe. Or you go to see uh, a movie, right? Maybe you're feeling a little out of control and you go see the new Bourne film, right? Who has the ability to control every aspect of global life and makes everything work out to his favor. And you come away and you say, I want to imitate Jason Bourne. I want my life to look like that, and I'd like to look like that personally. And, or you go, right, if we were to take the other, another tag, you say you go see a romantic comedy, and you come home and you say, I want my marriage to imitate, right, uh, a place in which everything can be tied up and have a bow on it in 90 minutes, right? You, you have the sense that you want to aspire to something. And it could be through being introduced to someone new, a following, a hero, or example that you've had previously, right? A desire to imitate. Now, this isn't always conscious. Uh, sometimes it's subconscious. Uh, and so, you know, you might say you're, um, you're walking down the street and you walk, you know, you walk by somebody particularly attractive. And you go home and your kid does something or you meet a friend and you blow up. And you suddenly realize, I'm really angry, well, why are you angry? And you start to think about it, and you didn't really pay attention at the time, but seeing the beautiful person, right, made you feel ugly. You say, I don't like myself. And I know that I would imitate that if I could, but I'm also confronted with my inability to imitate it because that person won the genetic lottery and I didn't. Right? And so you feel a certain tension, a certain conflict that then spills over in another, uh, another way. Uh, if... This particularly plays out as we need to focus in relationships, right? We started to allude to this during the children's lesson. But say I'm sitting on the park bench in Harry Myers and somebody runs by and they're, they're healthy and they look happy. And I think, I, I want what that guy has. So I, uh, we happen to bump into each other in the parking lot on the way out. And I say, you know, wh- where do you run? How do you, what do you do? Yada, yada, yada. He says, I'm part of the running club. Come try it out. I go and I try it out and start running and then we're good friends but then he's the lead runner and say I happen to be a good runner and start to compete with him. And all of a sudden we have friction. There's tension. Because while I was imitating him I come to a certain point where, uh, where that imitation has resulted in, in us not being um, removed in a power structure but instead being rivals. Or instead being competitors. Now, even though I've thrown out a couple of athletic running and skateboarding metaphors, you realize in some ways, because women are more sophisticated at relationship, they're also far more sophisticated at imitation and the tension that comes with imitation. Right? And probably most everyone here, male or female, can think of a time in which there has been a friendship that has been changed, right? that may have started out with some element of imitation, whether between the two or on a third object, but conflict and tension grew. And as a result, that friendship 
came apart to some extent and was uh, allocated, reoriented uh, in different ways. And I think this is what, exactly what James is talking about when he writes in chapter 4, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so this is what Gerard uh, observes, is that all human beings have desire. Those desires are forged by imitation. Whether you're growing up and decide, I want to be like that person or have that ability, or you're an adult and you say, I want to have that marriage or those kids or that job, right? your desires are forged by seeing something and desiring to imitate it. And this is mimetic theory. Now, we've noted that mimetic theory just causes a lot of conflict. It causes a lot of tension. In fact, uh, most social theorists said uh, if mimetic theory was simply allowed to govern the ancient world, which in some cases it was, without any check or balance, you would have nothing but constant fighting, constant competition, constant warfare, right, to take out rivals, and then you would desire something different and imitate it, and then you would want to destroy that which became a rival in that opportunity to imitate. So, ancient culture had to come up with a way of alleviating the tension, the conflict. Just like in the children's lesson, right, when Lionel breaks his leg and Stephen and Timmy can focus on him and deride him and complement their own abilities now that he's been removed from the equation, right, the ancient world needed a way in which to remove the pressure and vent the steam of this kind of tension. And that was the scapegoat. Right? You may know the words or the idea of a scapegoat because it actually comes from, in the Old Testament, the uh, place where the p- sins of the people were placed on a goat who was bore those sins out into the wilderness. But scapegoat theory uh, refers to something that is much larger. And there's really no ancient culture in the world that didn't have some form of scapegoating. In other words, scapegoating occurred, you have all this tension and conflict, and then cultures realize, you know, if we, if we select someone that we decide is evil or wicked or needs to be punished, and then do that, all of our tension seems to be directed on that person. And it alleviates the interpersonal conflict we have and makes us feel good for a while. So in many ancient cultures, this became a form of human sacrifice, where at a periodic time, someone would be chosen There might be a choosing mechanism like a drawing of lots and that person was decided to be evil or wicked. And by putting that person to death, all of the energy of the community was focused on that person and that tension uh, was alleviated. Now this is how it happened in the ancient world. If we, a quick example from today's world, you know, Matt is our music director. He's a professional musician, right? Gifted in those ways. But I aspire to music as well. And so let's just say that I start to learn the guitar. And uh, start to sing a little bit. Matt and I are friends, and he's helping me along. He's tutoring me a little bit. But I'm getting better and better. And so I overcome some stage fright and decide to start singing. And Matt realizes he hears me sing. And he says, I think Sam Smith and Adele had a love child. And it's your voice. And I said, yes, 
Yes, they did. And, and I keep, so I'm playing, and, and then I, I move even closer to where Matt is, and I write a song, right? And he's, he weeps. He cries for joy. He's moved. And he says, I feel like heaven and earth came closer together, and I say, yes, it did. Uh, and so Matt now, we had started out as friends and had this comfortable relationship, but now that I am a rival to him, a competitor, and am vying to take over the afters, he is, we're going to have conflict, right? Until, right, so we need somewhere for this tension to go, right? We really don't want to go head to head. We don't want to sacrifice our friendship, but what we have been imitating has, is now uh, is threatened. So what are we going to do? Well, imagine that now someone else in the musical community, of which I'm firmly established now, uh, has, you know, falls, uh, you know, messes up, has a moral failure. And Matt and I get together and say, yep, we knew it. It was coming. Right? He's, his words, he never sang, really. He never meant what he sang. And our, isn't the industry better without him? Right? And so we celebrate, right? What are we doing? We're taking the conflict and tension that we may have interpersonally and we're placing it on a scapegoat. Right? We're allowing it to be removed. We're making ourselves feel more righteous as a result of doing it. We're helping us survive in this world rather than to face this tension and rivalry. Right? And we do it by punishing someone who doesn't necessarily deserve to be punished. But you have to keep in mind, for the scapegoat mechanism to work, you have to be persuaded that the scapegoat is evil. It has to be wicked or the scapegoat mechanism does not work. And this is where uh, Christianity is terribly unique. Really in all the world's stories. And this is what converted Gerard. He said, Christianity alone, every culture has the scapegoat. In Christianity alone, the scapegoat is innocent. In other words, the book of Job and ultimately the story of Jesus does not permit you ever to think that the scapegoat is guilty. From start to finish, Job reminds you that Job is innocent and does not deserve what's fallen on him. And Gerard said that is the only thing that actually interrupts the mimetic uh, desire imitation cycle that characterizes all of humanity. It is the innocent scapegoat that, that uh, prevents the cycle. Now, how and, and why does this work? Well, we, we see it unfolding in Job. And here I want to bounce around Job just a little bit in order to demonstrate this to you. We're coming up to a neat place in chapter 29. And if you're, you have your Bibles, you can open to it. Because it's actually the place that Job gives us the clearest picture of who he was before the tragedy. Right? We know what he's lost, but we really don't know anything about Job himself in terms of his character and his person. But when you get to chapter 29, and you look at verses 1 through 10, um, well, he begins by saying, oh, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. So he's thinking back to how he once had an imitant, uh, I don't even know what that word is I just said, once had an intimate and close relationship with God, right? He's thinking back before. And then if you go down um, to 7, he starts to speak about himself. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. 
The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. And then if you go to verse 21 of chapter 29, Men listened to me and waited, and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Right. Oh. We suddenly realize that Job was not just rich. Right? He not only had a, a well-established estate, he was the leader of his community. Right? When he went out to the city gate, which is where all politics were done and everything important was decided, when the men gathered, so when he showed up, the young men stepped aside and the old men covered their mouths. They stopped talking because no one had anything to say when Job was speaking. Everyone else was quiet. He says he's a, a king among his troops and for his face to smile upon someone, for him to show his countenance on someone was comfort to them because he had that kind of influence in the city. He was the premier man in the town. Right? A place, a person of, of remarkable standing. But now we've said that the language regarding Job has gotten increasingly destructive, increasingly harsh. And if we look at our passage from his friend Zophar today in chapter 20, and if we just glance at verses 23 and 29, and remember where uh, Job started, now Zophar will say, uh, and he's speaking of the wicked, I'm going to start in, in verse 22. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him to fill his belly to the full. God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Tears come upon him. Zophar is celebrating uh, the assassination of the wicked. God's killing uh, the wicked. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fan will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. He's also stating what has already occurred to Job. What happens to the wicked? God consumes their tent. Job's tent has already been consumed, for Job is utterly wicked. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away. Also has already happened. Dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. What is Zophar saying? I celebrate God's destruction of the wicked. This is how it happens. This is what has happened to you. Job, you are wicked. You're a wicked man. And everything that's befalling you, you deserve. But now, remember, Job was essentially the king of the town. The man everyone looked for for wisdom. And here they're able to deride him as utterly uh, wicked. Eliphaz will then go on uh, in uh, chapter 22... Uh, to actually identify Job's sins. Now, what's interesting about this is if you've been tracking over and over again, the friends are saying, Job, you must be sinful. This would not have befallen you if you weren't sinful. Right? And so Job says, okay, what's my sin? The friends haven't offered an answer. Over and over, what? okay, how have I sinned? 
No, you're sinful. You have to be. Well, you get to 22, and Eliphaz is actually going to start to articulate some of the sin of Job. And it occurs in 22, verses 4 through 9. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread for the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Goodness. Okay. And what picture do we have here? Job remembering back, saying, I was king and respected premier amongst the community. We have Zophar saying, you're utterly wicked and we celebrate your destruction. We have Eliphaz saying, uh, we know your sins. You don't take care of the widows. You don't take care of the orphans. You used your power of, uh, position of power and prestige to consume rather than to give life. And everything you're getting, you've deserved. Of course, we have no reference to any of these actions. Right? It seems that they're just making things up as they go along. And in the interest of time, there are a couple of interesting passages that we will skip over this morning, but that say that not only the three friends have turned against Job, but the entire community has. And so that he's left utterly alone. And what you have unfolding in the book of Job is the scapegoat theory. Job starts off as uh, first among equals, but then tragedy besets him. And it's opportunity for all the tension and all the resentment amongst those who live in his proximity be turned against him so that you have uh, the declaration that he is wicked without evidence. You have the fabrication of stories that make him out worse than he is. And you can imagine Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz in the town saying, how did we ever trust this guy? How did we ever look up to him? Thank goodness God has judged him. And now we can participate in that judgment and we will condemn him with a voice that is just as loud. Now the really remarkable thing, which I've already mentioned to you, is that Job is innocent. We know that he's innocent because the book tells us, but even his response in our passage today is really remarkable. At the beginning of 21, Job says, Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak, and after I've spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man. Job says, listen, I'm going to talk, and after I'm done, keep going. Keep your mocking. After all, my complaint isn't really against you. My complaint is against God. And in that, he's a picture of uh, really what will be articulated later in Isaiah as a suffering servant. He says, yes, I will take your abuse. You can continue to mock me. I've, I've voiced my innocence, but this, this train has left the station. And unless God intercedes, there's nothing that can be done. And so I will just continue to take my complaint up with God. But it alone, remember, again, alone in the ancient world, you have a story of the scapegoat in which the scapegoat is unquestionably innocent. Which, of course, we've said that Job looks forward to the coming of the Messiah in his desire for a witness and an arbiter and some, some uh, kinsman redeemer who will stand before him. But in this way, Job anticipates the Messiah because he's a picture of the suffering servant. 
He suffers and is the scapegoat for the community, looking for, forward to the true scapegoat. And it's as Jesus comes as that true scapegoat, as the innocent one, and takes upon himself all of the mocking, all of the scourge of the world, and everyone who, uh, who directs him to the cross will be utterly convinced that he is wicked and he is telling a story that is different than God's story, and he will be put to death. And upon rising from the dead, upon being vindicated in his story, he does not issue retribution or vengeance. He lives out what he spoke from the cross, which is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In your humanity, you are locked in a cycle of desire and imitation that is exhausting, that robs you of your humanity, that you, you try and pursue to achieve something, and even if you're successful, you're dissatisfied and then just choose to imitate something else. The one thing that breaks the desire and imitation cycle that, of course, will have to place tension on the scapegoat. Do you, I hope you buy the scapegoat theory this morning because when you, you know, from, we've talked about some funny examples. We've talked about some easy examples. But you realize when you go home and you feel like you're, uh, your spouse's attention is being more given to the kids than to you, and you snap at your spouse, right? Or you snap at the kids, right? They're the scapegoat, right? Your tension, your conflict gets placed upon a party that isn't guilty in the situation. It's all over. And it's only when we come to Christ and realize that, yes, he was willing to take all of that even though he deserved none of it, And still, at the heart of being the scapegoat, would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We realize that that cycle of desire and imitation is over. And that we've been met by the one who will truly love us. And to imitate him is to have desire for the one who truly fills us up. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your great and abundant kindness to us. We thank you that you have provided... Uh, the scapegoat that would uh, free us. Free us from uh, desire aimed in the wrong direction. Free us from imitating the wrong thing. Uh, Freeze us because uh, even though we would make you the scapegoat, you have loved us. And even though we have declared you guilty when you were innocent, you have continued to seek us. And rather than executing uh, justice or vengeance, uh, you have made provision that we might be forgiven. And this is indeed what makes our story truly unique. Would you press it uh, to us? Would you warm our hearts this morning, awaken us uh, to remember the uniqueness of what you have done in history? And may that love cause us to desire you all the more. And may our imitation be not of this world and its corrupt nature, but instead may it be imitation of you. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.